Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 35. That was making it about me and who I am as a professional and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to be seen. And I had to learn to listen more deeply and listen to family members, listen to people with disabilities, read autobiographies, follow blogs that are written by disabled people, and start to really learn from the community as opposed to imposing my non-disabled lens on what I think people with disabilities need. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, teachers and educators, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast. Today, I am sitting down with Dr. Christine Ashby out of Syracuse University, and uh, man, what a great conversation we have. Um, she is the director of the brand new Center on Disability and Inclusion up uh, up there in Syracuse, and uh, what a time to start a brand new center. <laughs> we talk about that, but uh, we also talk about her her first teaching experience and and what that was like because she was a a co-teacher in a school that was fully integrated uh, students with disabilities fully integrating into the general classrooms and the school building itself was actually set up in uh, a kind of like an open floor plan (laughs) type of school district so um, really interesting conversation around that Uh, we get into talking about how how you go about changing the culture of a school or of a district when uh, you know, it can take so much time and energy and uh, commitment really from everybody, from teachers, from administration, and from uh, the community. Um, and then obviously we, we highlight some of the new work that uh, they're doing up there in Syracuse, uh, and they're really becoming a, a hub for uh, conversations around uh, inclusion and, and disabilities, and not just within the K-12 school structure, but uh, pre-K and all the way through uh, college and beyond. So um, you, <laughs> we get the sense that Syracuse really is going to be the hub of a lot of this work in, in the coming years. And then again, we wrap up talking about her book uh, titled An Acting Change from Within, Disability Studies Meets Teaching and Teacher Education. And uh, and just what a great uh, <laughs> a book to highlight on this podcast, right? Because her whole thing in this book is bridging that gap between the research and the application. So uh, she was excited to come on to the episode to talk about it, and I was excited to have her on as a guest. So I hope uh, I hope you get some value out of this conversation. I'm pretty sure you're going to get some value out of this conversation. It was, it was a great conversation. So before we get into that interview, though, just want to highlight a couple things for you. Uh, number one, everything that we talk about on this episode can be found on our show notes page. If you go to jabadoo.com slash show35, you'll find links to hopefully everything we talk about. Uh, but if you go there and you, you're looking for something that we talked about and you can't find it, please shoot me an email because I want to make sure that uh, in the future I can go back and edit those uh, those pages to make sure that in the future, if somebody's listening to this episode, uh, they can go find those links. So you can shoot me an email directly, uh, J-O-N at jabadoo.com. So John at jabadoo.com. Uh, shoot me an email and let me know what mistake I made or what I left out. Uh, so yeah, show notes are on uh, jabadoo.com slash show 35. You will also find uh, 
a opportunity to go support the show by purchasing some Jabadoo Original Teacher Tees. Uh, this is just three t-shirts that we have right now. Uh, just some awesome teacher quotes on it. So you can purchase those t-shirts for, to use for uh, you know dress down days or just out and about uh, showing off your teacher pride. So go check those out. Uh, links for that is on the show notes page. We would also love for you to connect with us on social. We got uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I'm I'm trying. I think I've been trying for like four episodes now. <laughs> I'm doing a little bit better. Uh, but all of our tags are are at Jabadoo. So connect with us on social. Again, links on the show notes page. And finally, if you want to stay updated on you know, everything that we're doing here at Jabadoo. Um, right now, we've got an email newsletter that gets sent out just once a week, really just to remind you about the episodes. But uh, anything that we do in the future, uh, you will be the first to know. So sign up for the email newsletter, again, right there on the show notes page. And with that, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Christine Ashby. All right, on today's episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast, I am sitting down with the director of the Center on Disability and Inclusion at Syracuse University. She was an inclusive special education teacher for five years before transitioning into research and ultimately her PhD and collegiate teaching. Her work has been published in journals, including the Equity and, Ed the Equity and Excellence in Education and the International Journal of Inclusive Education, among many, many others. <laughs> And her co-edited book, Enacting Change from Within, Disability Studies Meets Teaching and Teacher Education. It explores how disability studies can inform the practical work of teachers. Dr. Christine Ashby, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am well, and thank you so much for having me on your show. Yeah, thank you. And this is, um, we've been back and forth for a couple months now because you started a new center right in the middle of a global pandemic. And for some reason that put uh, rumble strips in the road for you. <laughs> yes. This, the, the launch of the center was a long time coming and then a long time in being able to really make it public because nobody wants to announce or launch something new and exciting right when the world is closing down. So yeah, yeah. not great timing, <laughs> but we're still really excited. Yeah. You said it, you got like the confirmation, like two weeks before everything shut down. Yeah, I think it was all within a few days, actually, of the the rumbles that the university was going to go remote. And then we got the announcement and then we went fully remote. So we decided to sort of wait and do the official launch until the fall when we were at least up and running, although right, certainly not fully right. in person. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So long, like you said, long time coming, but uh, you've been at Syracuse for a while now. Um, but before that, you were a teacher. And before that you were a student. So let's go all the way back to there. Sure. Uh, what was your experience as a student coming through? Uh, was it public education or private education? What was your experience? Public school um, through and through. And through and through. in fact, a very small rural K through 12, mm. you know, all in one building sort of public school experience. I am actually the child of two educators granddaughter of another. So you know, my grandmother was a high school English teacher who taught me to always sort of speak with conviction, but of course, proper grammar. <laughs> my parents um, were both educators. My dad was a high school guidance counselor and my mother, a music teacher in middle school and high school. And I said, I would do anything but teach but I should <laughs> not because I didn't value education. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, I grew up in a house where education was treated as this sort of immense gift, but also incredible responsibility. 
that school was the center of our town. All of my parents' friends were teachers. And so I was probably more at home in that school building than any place else that I ever was. I, school was kind of made for me. Um, yeah. But I didn't want to be a teacher because everybody- That's always the thing, isn't it? <laughs> always, you, you're else. expected to, and of course you don't want to, yes. Yeah, I had lots of, lots of other aspirations that ranged from, you know, a career on Broadway to, uh, you know, being in the Senate to working for a marketing firm. None of that obviously has panned out, but that's hard. <laughs> yeah. So I, I switched to education, I guess, predictably about halfway through my undergraduate education, um, also at a state school, part of the SUNY system in New York, Geneseo, outstanding school for education. Um, but that's not what I started in. I started in business. <laughs> I, I think I was just trying to say, I'm going to do the exact opposite of education. <laughs> and But I kept finding myself drawn back to schools and kids and the ideas of, of equity and social justice mm -hmm. kind of brought me back to education. Yeah. Was, was there a specific... Uh... Uh, you know, experience in college that, that switched you back over? Or was it just kind of like long time coming? Like it was inevitable. Both. I think it was, I, you know, I ran summer camps. I was always the person who was explaining things to people. I think the writing was on the wall. I have in my head a pivotal moment, but it's probably become way bigger than it really was <laughs> in reality, which is I was sitting in a business ethics class and we were debating the Ford Pinto sort of disaster. I don't know if you know the story of the Ford Pinto. It was a car I, that- I know that as a car, that's about it. And I know, I know it was tiny and that's about all I know. Very small car that they were trying to make as inexpensive as possible. And there was this part, I, I, I'm gonna say it was $1.87, but that's, mm. I, that's just with the number in my head. That it would have cost, and if they'd put this part on, they knew it was gonna save lots of lives but they did a cost benefit analysis on the wrongful death suits versus the cost of the part. And they decided to go with the wrongful death suits. We debated it in class. And my recollection is that I was the only person who thought that was a bad idea. I am sure that is not the reality, yeah. but I, I got really righteously indignant and I dropped the class that day and changed my major. I think I just needed a reason and I found <laughs> one that seemed sure. really compelling. So, um, so I think it was both, I, I needed a hard stop and that gave me a really easy one. And then I switched into a dual certification major in elementary and special education and had this idea that if I'm going to be a teacher, I want to work with the kids that nobody else wants. Right. That was my, my mm. thinking, which is, really terrible reason to, to go into working with students with disabilities because I think it was built on a lot of really wrong assumptions mm. about what the experience of disability is. And, sure. you know, setting out because you're going to try to save or fix something is never the right way to position yourself, particularly as a non-disabled person. In that sure. World. I've, uh, I've come to that uh, understanding with, uh, I've, I've been lucky enough to take some international trips uh, and as Americans, we try to kind of do that with some uh, third world countries. And there, we've got a lot of problems here that, that we need to start working on first. Um, not that, I mean, we can uh, certainly, you know, when you, when you have the, the resources to uh, give, give some of that uh, away, you know, certainly do that. But um, yeah, and I, I, but I don't think like too many, there, I think most people who go into education probably go in with a similar thing, like mm -hmm. I'm going to change the world. 
And education seems to be like one of the most tangible ways to do that. Uh, you said you you considered a career in politics. You're going to go into the Senate, maybe. And you know that's that's another way where you you get a, you get the opportunity to change, right? And you hope that you're doing it for the better. Uh, but going into um, you know special education, there there's that little extra element that you're you get to be the voice for somebody who doesn't necessarily have it. Uh, where as opposed to, you know, uh, as a music teacher, I see all the students coming through and, you know, most of my students, they're going to be fine, <laughs> like no matter what happens, but you know, the, the special education teachers in my building are just fantastic and, and so giving and so loving. So, um, let's dive into your, your teaching experience. And you spent five years between, I think it was two different schools, mm-hmm. school, two different districts. So, uh, what was your role as the teacher? What were you doing and what did you learn in those five years? So I worked in two different school districts in the same county, um, both of them small, both of them quite rural. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that idea of you know, going in to try to, to be a voice for a particular set of people. I had this idea that anybody can teach, you know, that some kids learn in spite of our teaching and <laughs> others need us to be really good and they need us no. to be really, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think, so I was really committed to, to students that perhaps other people weren't thinking about as having lots of potential that I really wanted to work with those populations. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the great fortune of in both of the school districts that I worked at to be um, the special ed half of co-taught teaching teams. So okay. I was always working in general education okay. settings but I was always responsible on, you know, on paper for the students with mm-hmm. disabilities within those settings. One of those districts, um, Sandy Creek, which is not, not uncoincidentally where I went to school, oh, okay. is where I ended up going back and teaching. So despite saying I was never going to teach, not only did I teach, I taught in my <laughs> own school district. Um, and in that school district, there were no students out of general education. Mm-hmm. It was a fully inclusive district that is, was unheard of then. It remains pretty unheard of today. Not a lot of places that have made a commitment to including students, even those with the most considered to have the most complex support needs. And I had the great fortune of working with an amazing team of teachers that were, that said, these are all of our students. This is our educational community. We're going to create spaces that work for everybody. And it also was an interesting, you know, it's a very small town. So the school mm-hmm. was really central. Most of the teachers worked in the same district that their children attended. So yeah. it was very much a community school and very collaborative and very committed to students with disabilities, um, including students that would have been in segregated special education in most other districts. Yeah, so it was a really I, amazing place to sort of cut my teeth and figure out what I didn't know, what I needed to know differently, and and to learn from amazing colleagues and amazing students. Yeah, I mean, just uh, going back to um, you know what you said that that commitment to really being a totally inclusive school for all students, it that is a big commitment because mm-hmm. there's always this this. Uh, you could you could go back to your business class and say this cost benefit analysis to including these kids into a classroom where some of the distractions that that come from you know the, those populations 
uh, would not be distractions that would be there if those populations were not in that classroom. And so there's there's a balance that needs to be found there. Uh, and that that can be very difficult to do. So how do you feel like uh, your school district, how did they do with that? And then why uh, was it good or bad? So I think part of it was the school just had this very collaborative feel. And, and I should say this was, you know, early mid nineties when I started there, 95. They had were a few years into this full inclusive approach. They also had open classrooms. And I say that, which was a very 70s thing, right? You'd, you had these big open spaces with then modular units sort of dividing them a little bit, but students went in and out and you could see what was happening in all of the other classrooms. So I, I say that this was in the elementary, the high school was traditionally structured. I say that by the distraction element was something we all dealt with all the time anyway. So sure. that piece sure. of it, but it also created this amazing culture where I could literally, I, I kept my desk in the middle and I could look around in all the classrooms. And so while I technically on paper maybe was supposed to be here, if they were watching a movie or something and be like, you know what, I'm gonna go over and just help out in this room because mm -hmm. there's this group of kids that seem to be struggling. There was just so much natural support and collaboration. Yeah. When you see each other all the time, you're in each other's spaces and it's a small school. And I, I'd be the first to admit, when your entire district, when I was teaching there, had about 1,200 students, K through 12, you can bring about really pretty systemic change. Pretty, quickly. a lot quicker. Yeah, a lot quicker. You can just get everybody there. Whereas most of my work um, since I've been in higher education, but most of my work has been with urban school districts, where there's just multiple layers of bureaucracy and a lot more going on. But I, I certainly think there had to be something that sort of was the glue that held it together. And I really felt like, A, it was this sort of commitment to community and collaboration, but also just this commitment to these are all our students. Mm -hmm. And I, it would be often my gen ed partners that would correct somebody if they said, you know, um, Mrs. Fowler, it's time for your class to come down. And she'd go, no, 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 I think you mean Mrs. Fowler and Mrs. Ashby's class. Like this is so both communicating that I was an equal partner, that we were in this together, but that all of our students had value, um, I think was really important. It, it certainly wasn't perfect, but there there just was this really deep sort of ethos of community yeah. that pervaded the school. And that is, that is something that goes all the way into culture building, right? That that it was it was not just uh, a, something that was implemented and it worked. Like this was ingrained in the culture of the school. Mm -hmm. um, so for a school that you said is larger, how do you get a district like that to get on board with something like this uh, when it's when it's so lethargic to, <laughs> to change? Yeah, I mean they always say the only person that likes change is a wet baby, right? People are. <laughs> Are inherently heard that. I love it. My husband was that was from some of his management training. He told me that once when he was working <laughs> on his MBA. Um, Everybody wants change until it happens. <laughs> well, and there's just such resistance. You know, people change is scary to people. And I think mm. if you've been either educated yourself in a particular way of, of of organizing schooling, or have always worked in a particular schooling structure, shifting that seems it's like you're about to jump off a cliff. Um, I've done a lot of school reform work with larger school districts, whether it's an individual school building or an entire district. 
And there's certainly things that that need to happen for real reform to both happen, but also be sustained. Right. So there has to be a shared commitment. You have mm. to have enough. You have to be a core nucleus of people that can get behind whatever it is you're trying to do. So whether it's moving towards a more inclusive model of service delivery, there have to be enough people that that they care, <laughs> that they've got a yeah. dog in that mm. fight. Yeah. And they have to develop some shared agreements and some shared understandings of where you're trying to go. There then has to be a supportive administration or at least a not obstructive one, because there has to be, you know, some freedom for folks to try things. There has to be an opportunity for problem solving. And then you have to start building capacity. So it's both building a vision that has to be driven by what I consider a non-negotiable vision of inclusion. And then you have to equip people with, with tools, strategies, safe places to talk when it's hard, and, and continual support. Far too many school, quote unquote, school reform initiatives have failed mm-hmm. because we do some one-shot PD. We get really excited for a year. We yeah. cut ribbons and celebrate, and then we let it wither on the vine because right. we don't attend. Um, so I think whether it's a tiny, tiny school district like the one I taught in or a much larger urban district like Syracuse City, which I've worked with a lot, you have to start with a shared vision and then you have to do the work of of Mm -hmm. building capacity and making strategic alliances. Um, And the other piece I would say is really important is you have to make sure that you're working towards something that matters to the staff and the the people in yeah. that building, not yeah. just to somebody telling them they're supposed to care about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It brings, brings to mind two thoughts. One is, you know, uh, change, ha- change comes from within. Hmm, that sounds mm-hmm. like a title of a book somewhere that I've heard. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then, but I mean, two is, is uh, you know, to, you do, you get, you know, you go to a PD, you go to a conference and you come back and you're fired up about that one thing, but change, like you said, takes a long time. So like you almost have to go into something saying, Hey, we're dedicating X number of years to this, you know, um, in order for it to be sustainable. Right. It's almost like, you know, building, building a new, uh, I'm not sure if this happens or not, but this is what comes to mind is, is building a brand new building, and saying we're not going to do any rehab on this for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Well, that building's going to be horrible <laughs> after a few years, right? You got to budget the work that's going to it's going to take to continue it uh, moving forward. So, uh, let's transition then into uh, some of the work that you're doing now with uh, the new center that's been mm-hmm. developed here at Syracuse. Which I know you've got partnerships with a bunch of different organizations that you're working with. Uh, a bunch of different populations that you're working with, not just uh, through schools, because I know one of the goals of the center is is global equity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, start with its inception. Why why this center? Um, you know, there were like you said, there were there were a couple other institutions there. Why did this center uh, come to be? Great, thanks. So I I've actually been at SU for a while. I did my PhD at Syracuse, um, and when I came to SU, the reason I wanted to be there and what attracted me to Syracuse University was its historical commitment to inclusion for students with uh, more significant needs. In particular, I was really interested in all the work that had been done around inclusive education for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities and students with autism. 
And so I came in with my sort of educator lens on, right? That's, I did my PhD there. I then have been on the faculty at SU since 2007. And in those roles, again, we just keep foregrounding students that are, I would argue, most often at risk from marginalization and oppression. So we really, we keep at the center of our education program students who are students with disabilities, students who are multiply marginalized students. So we, we really center those students in our work. So as you indicated, the center, it's this new umbrella center, the Center on Disability and Inclusion is new, but the work that it builds on is anything sure. you thought. Right. So it builds on, first of all, Syracuse's really long tradition in disability rights and inclusion, but then these historic centers that were part of the School of Education the Center on Human Policy, which is over 40 years old and was at the forefront of the deinstitutionalization and community integration movement. When you think about the exposés about the institutions and what was happening for folks with, um, at the time yeah, they would have used the term mental retardation, mm -hmm. that work really has deep roots in Syracuse. And we were really at the heart of that. The what is now the Inclusion and Communication Initiatives, which was formerly the Institute on Communication and Inclusion, I've directed that for many years. And that really focuses on supporting students who don't have reliable verbal speech to be able to communicate through a variety of, of technologies and support. So that, again, pushing the envelope on this idea of presuming competence in folks that many others would disregard. And then of course, there's the Tayshoff Center on Inclusive Higher Education, which houses um, one of the largest and sort of nationally recognized inclusive higher ed programs for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So we currently have close to a hundred students that have labels of intellectual and developmental disabilities that are participating in Syracuse University, having a fully immersive inclusive college experience. So we had those three historical centers, but we wanted to find a way to sort of bring all of our work together to mm -hmm. collaborate in new and more in powerful ways to be able to go seek even larger state and federal grants and really leverage our work with school districts in different ways. So we wrote for and were careful what you wish for. We wrote for <laughs> and were successful in earning in four grant contracts in the span of a few months. Wow. And those helped us launch our mid-state partnership, okay. which is a technical assistance center that helps systems change efforts in 51 school districts in central New York. So we work directly that, with mean? schools. So what we are doing, it's these are all schools that have been identified as potentially needing to improve outcomes for students with disabilities. Okay. So we have a staff of specialists and trainers that work with these school districts in areas that they want to improve or have been identified as needing to improve. Sure. And we work with them through a variety of either trainings or embedded supports, ongoing technical assistance to help them move towards um, improved outcomes, greater inclusion, higher graduation rates, whatever they've identified as areas of need. So, and we look at area, everything from behavior, literacy, specially designed instruction, culturally responsive and sustaining practices. There's a whole series of specialists. We also are the site of two family and community engagement centers that are also part of this partnership network. 
and one that's focused on school-aged children and one early childhood. And why we were so excited about this is all of a sudden now we're going to look at issues and challenges facing schools and communities and students with disabilities from multiple stakeholder perspectives. So mm -hmm. not just working with teachers, mm -hmm. not just working with school leaders, not just working with families and community organizations, but looking at all of it and trying to approach this challenge from all these different directions and communicate differently. So yeah. that was really the what kind of got the center up and in, in, in going in new directions. Um, and then a few months later, we were successful in getting a grant to work on pre-employment transition services. So mm -hmm. basically helping 14 to 21 year old students with disabilities develop work um, skills that would help them be successful in work and post-secondary education. So advocacy skills, workplace training, um, understanding how to do resumes and, and participate in interviews. So that project got started also during the pandemic. So yeah. it has been, <laughs> it's been a wild sort of way to get started. But with yeah. all of these new pieces that we've brought in, now we really feel like we're looking at disability equity and inclusion across the lifespan. And we're able to touch teacher education, mm -hmm. leader education, direct work with schools, direct work with individuals with disabilities. And, and it's creating all kinds of new and exciting sort of possibilities for yeah. this work. No, it's fantastic. And I mean, all of the different pillars that you now have that are that are propping you up. I mean, it just it it seems inevitable that, you know, Syracuse will be the hub now for, you know, a lot of this stuff that's happening for for these populations. Um, something that, uh, you know, came to mind as, as you were explaining this, um, I my uh, I have some cousins who have autism and are now uh, at the age where they're graduating. And I know that um, their school district in New York, it was, it's on Long Island, uh, offers a, a, like an adaptive high school diploma. Is that something that's unique to that district or is that statewide for New York? So New York allows, there's multiple ways. I often have my undergraduate students actually track all the different ways you can get out of school <laughs> in New York State. And I don't mean that euphemistically. In a negative way. <laughs> so many diploma and credentialing options, you yeah. know, ranging from a region's diploma, which is the standard diploma in New York State that you have to pass a certain number of these regents exams and complete these courses. And that's the sort of standard diploma. And then you have the regents diploma with advanced designation, the regents diploma with honors, but then you also have these skills credentials that are, there's, a, there's other options for students who perhaps aren't going to get a traditional diploma. And some of them are career and vocational. Mm -hmm. And then there's, um, so yes, there are these sort of alternative pathways that students can participate in. So how, how do you? So they don't all lead to the same sort of possible outcomes. Sure. Is that something? Because I know that that's not anything that I had ever heard of before. So is that something? Do you know is that isolated to New York? Because I've never heard of it before. And is that something that other states could potentially look at as an option for being more inclusive in general, especially when students are getting to an age where they're leaving and going into into public work? So certainly there's been a big commitment in New York state to have more kids graduate, right? To raise our graduation rates, to have more students with disabilities successfully graduate. Mm -hmm. it, we are not alone in having multiple um, sort of diploma options. I think 
we've always liked to have New York, I think has always been sort of, if there's a way to have more of something, we, we tend to do that. <laughs> and we've tended to be a fairly test heavy state. Our Regents system um, has been, I think was certainly one of the, one of the first and, and one of the states that has the most robust sort of testing system. Mm. There are positives and negatives to these alternative diplomas. I mean, obviously we want everyone to leave with something, but, right. but not all diplomas lead to the same possible next steps. Of course, of course. And so certainly if you leave with a credential versus a diploma, you might not necessarily be able to take that and go to college with it. Right. However, yeah. There are there is a growing recognition, certainly, that there are students who might benefit from additional vocational training and that that's going to be more in line with how they're going to have have a successful adult experience. And there are certainly programs like our inclusive you program that you don't have to have a high school diploma to go. You and go. you can come and you apply and you are part of SU courses and you complete you get a certificate. And it allows you to have a higher education experience and then also to get opportunities to learn job skills so that mm -hmm. if you want, there's an internship component to it as well. So you're both taking a course of study in an area of interest and you're working on um, job readiness skills as well. Yeah. And I think that that's something that uh, as a whole, I think we've as a country and as a, as a system, we've gotten better at that transition piece, right? Because, you know, for so long, if you were a parent of a student with disabilities, you, you were tied to that for life and many still are. Um, but I think we are getting better at uh, those individuals who have those skills putting in these systems like you've been able to do with uh, with your center to help transition them into, you know, some sort of uh, vocational career or like you said, these options at the university, which is which is just really fantastic. So um, what would you say for, uh, you know, a teacher um, who is in one of these districts uh, where you just feel like, you know, the, the district isn't serving uh, students with disabilities the way that it could be or the way that it should be, really. Um, where do they start in terms of, you know, does it come from top down? Does it come from bottom up? How long does it take? What is, you know, all of these different things that are uh, at play? Um, how do they start to advocate for these students? So that's a really complicated, complex question that can be answered <laughs> a thousand different ways, but I would say- How would you all, say? How would I say it? So there you go. that was actually the impetus for the book that I wrote, which we can talk about it in a second. Perfect. I was hoping that that might transition yes. nicely. <laughs> and that was actually the, the sort of rationale behind that, Megan and I starting that book project. But I think for anyone, you know, you have to remember who you serve. So I always start there. You know, I think when you go into, when I talked about the, the problem with my own sort of complex about going in and wanting to fix all these kids mm -hmm. or save all these kids, mm -hmm. that was making it about me and who I am as a professional and what I'm going to do and how mm -hmm. I'm going to be seen. And one of the things that I had to learn very quickly, and I think a lot of, of really <laughs> energetic, um, passionate people have to learn is some humility. And most, people, so, most people coming out of college. Mm -hmm. And particularly yeah. those of us with really big personalities, you know, we want to just <laughs> storm in and fix everything. And I had to learn yeah. to listen more deeply and listen to family members, listen to people with disabilities, read autobiographies, follow blogs that are written by disabled people and start to really learn from the community as opposed to imposing my non-disabled lens on what I think people with disabilities right. need. So right. I think 
first of all, you know, I, the, one of the pieces of advice I always give our teacher candidates when they graduate is find your friends and more importantly, find your allies that even if you don't do the exact same kind of work that share a similar orientation, a similar commitment to social justice and equity, find them and then keep them. Mm-hmm. And talk to them and rely on them and draw on them. And whether they're in your building or whether they're in your tribe <laughs> of people that are in your larger community. I also always tell them to, again, remember that you are actually there to think about your students' experience. And so keeping that center centered in your work is important. And then form, you know, reach out and form what I call strategic alliances with people strategic who do. Strategic alliances. I love that. <laughs> Yes, because teaching can be seen as a really isolating profession. But I think the reason I felt so successful in my early years of teaching is everything about it was the exact opposite of that. It was so deeply collaborative, whether it was planning for instruction or debriefing a complicated situation with a kid, everything was done with other people. And I learned so much through that. So I think not isolating yourself and, and then presuming competence in the students and the people that you work with <laughs> and starting from that perspective. <laughs> but yeah. that I, could be a hard perspective to take. <laughs> oh, it's so hard. And, and, you know, people always say, oh, you teach special ed. You must've been patient. Oh my gosh. I'm like the least patient person. <laughs> ever I walk fast. I talk fast. I, I, everything I do has to happen now. Well, that's also a requirement of living in New York. (laughs) Not so much Syracuse. We're a little more laid back. You are, yeah. We are are definitely on the go people. I'm endlessly patient with with young people, but I I don't have a lot of patience with adults often. But I actually think that that sort of agitation helped me, but I needed to channel it into productive sort of ways. So the idea for this book project... um, so Megan is a, was a former doctoral student in the School of Education. So awesome. I, knew her, I knew her in multiple roles, um, but I was part of her dissertation committee. And she's just one of these really brilliant scholars who can think both quantitatively and qualitatively, mm. which is somebody who's a real qualitative researcher, I appreciate. But that's Megan your, and I- your right and your left, your left brain. Yeah. yeah. Megan and I shared this desire to take the theoretical work of disability studies, which is my, that is my academic home. It is where I find my, you know, my scholarly joy is in disability studies. But that often feels separate from the lived reality of teachers. Yeah. And I was a special ed teacher working in a system that even though I worked in this wildly progressive school district, it's still a system and systems resist change. Yep. So we don't want to theorize about education over here and then have the work of teaching happening over here. You are speaking my language. That's why this podcast exists. (laughs) Well, that's why I was excited by the invitation because we really wanted to write a book that yes, was highly theoretical and wrestled with really tough issues and, and, and challenging constructs, but applied them to the actual work teachers need to do in their jobs. Yeah. Because while I might fundamentally have huge issues with a system that is ba- a system of services that requires us labeling kids, I have. We could have a whole other conversation oh, about we, how I that is flawed. Actually, we shouldn't know, be deciding what services kids get based on some label they have. If uh, if you know uh, Dr. Mark Alter out of NYU, 
uh, he was on the podcast and I'm just now making the connection that, yeah, he, he talked about the same stuff. We'll link to that episode. So everybody can go listen to him. He, that was a fantastic conversation with him. Yeah. Um, that I, right. But that idea that if we thought about inside what kids need, instead of what kids are labeled as what they are. Yeah. But at the same time, teachers are working in a system that requires on a label for a child to get services. Mm. So I can problematize, you can theorize that all you right. want. I can Here's deconstruct the labeling all day long. I can quote stigma theory. I can talk, I can do all that. But at the end of the day, I've got a student in, in a classroom that is struggling, needs services, and needs that label in order to, to be able to, to get receive those services. Those services. Yeah. So we wanted a book that troubled those tensions and that spoke mm. to how educators can still maintain support, advance, live, breathe, an inclusive ethos, work towards the world as they envision it while working in the world as it exists. Mm. And we wanted something that would be a tool that they would think deeply, but also be able to apply. So we reached out to all these people and kind of like you talked about with your podcast and being surprised at who says yes, we reached out to all these people and we figured they would all say, we're not, I'm not contributing a chapter. People jumped at the chance to try to do the work of translating disability studies into practice. And that's how that, that book was born. And it's, how I think about my role at the university and how I think about, if I put my teacher ed hat on, I, I, I coordinate three of our programs and I really look at, we have to, our, our whole teacher ed program is taught through a disability studies lens, but it has to be married to and, and, you know, intersected with the work of teaching. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we will we will link to your book. We will link to you know everything that we talk about this in this podcast. Uh, I always say we link in the in the show notes. I do my best. I hope I get everything that, that we talk about. Um, but I like you said we we could we could spend another five hours talking about all the things that uh, are wrong that we could fix or you know how to work together. But alas, uh, we are running out of time. So is there anything that you wanted to touch on that you feel like we haven't touched on before we head to the exit ticket questions? Yes, because I would okay, be perfect. I would be woefully um, out of line if I didn't talk about one of the shortcomings in the field of disability studies and special education historically has been how white it is and how it mm. has not accounted for race and class and mm. language and sexuality in intersectional enough ways. And we know that this is a problem both in our teacher workforce and the need to diversify our teacher workforce, but also in how we think about our work. And so when we launched this new center, one of the things that was really important to me is to maintain that really staunch disability rights, disability studies, presumption of competence lens, but make it much more intersectional. And that we need to be looking at how race and class and sexuality are intersected with and formed by and inflected in, with disability. And that the real work of equity needs to account for all of that. And we need to stop talking about diversity here and disability here. So as I think about the next really important work that we all need to be doing is that we need to be speaking in much more intersectional and nuanced ways, but also making sure that our work reflects that. So that's really where I see the next big step we are trying to take is, is a focus on equity that is not just disability but that's really looking at, at 
these multiple intersecting um, yeah. lived experiences. Yeah, because as we all know, the, nothing is isolated, right? Everything is connected. And uh, to to continue your work with with that those additional lenses, um, when it hasn't been done uh, as well as it could have been in the past, is is very important. And obviously, I, I tip my hat to you for for leading the way with that. So thank you. Well, and there's lots of places that have, have really attended to that, but because so much of of our work you know, when we think about a lot of our work being with large urban school districts, we really need to be looking at these issues yeah. in complex and in intersectional ways. Yeah, of course. Wow. Uh, yeah, this has been such a great time. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's move over to our exit ticket questions. So these are the great. last four questions that I ask every guest okay. that comes on the podcast. And the first one then is, do you have a book recommendation that teachers should go read? And I might have an idea what it might be. <laughs> well, obviously, I hope they read my book. Obviously, your book. book. Just because, you know, that's that would be lovely. If and they I don't do it, that, then what would be? I like lots of really great people. But I actually, I'm kind of touching on what I just talked about. There's a great book written by some friends and colleagues of mine. Um, it's called Disability Studies and Critical Race Theory and Education, or DISCRIT. And there's actually a second edition, it's by Connor Ferry and Anima, and there's a second edition coming out soon, but the first edition is fabulous. And so if you wanna look at disability studies in some really intersectional ways, intersect with critical race theory, I think it's a really powerful text for people to engage with. Awesome, thanks. And you will have to introduce me to those authors then so that I can have them on oh, the podcast. they would be fabulous. All three of them would be. <laughs> Question number two is what resource uh, would you suggest teachers go look at? So I always say you should start with you know blogs, resources, books written by disabled people. Yeah. That's where we should start. That should be our primary source of information. Um, One of those weird, like you said that like blogs written by people who are disabled and I go, oh my goodness, like why have I never thought that that even exists? So do you have a couple off the top of your head that I meant to ask you that earlier? Yeah, um, I actually, so great. there's a couple, I do a lot of work with autism. That's one of my sort mm -hmm. of scholarly and research interests. And I'm actually teaching a course right now in discourse of autism. So we've been reading a lot of blogs. Two Perfect. of my favorites are autistic Hoya. Mm -hmm. um, and another is um, anything by the autism self advocacy network. <laughs> okay. they, there's a whole series of blogs connected there, but I really, I love autistic Hoya. And then I also really do a lot of podcasts um, related to, to, to race and intersectionality. A couple that I've really enjoyed and my students benefit from a lot are Nice White Parents and Code Switch. Those are two really powerful um, podcasts. In terms of centers or resources to look out, sort of larger national centers, mm -hmm. obviously I hope people come to our center's website, which is disabilityinclusioncenter.syr.edu. But a couple other great resources are the Swift Schools Network. Okay. They all focused on inclusion. The Cedar Center, which is a national technical yep. assistance center, and then the Great Lakes Equity Center. Okay. Really focuses on equity, intersectionally, um, disability, race, in really thoughtful ways. Fantastic. And we will have links to all of those uh, in the show notes. Perfect. Uh, question number three is, and you already, you already gave a little bit of advice. So if it's the same thing, that's fine. You can repeat it. But what would be a piece of advice that you want to give teachers, particularly those who are just starting out their careers? Yeah, I will repeat, find, find your allies, figure out who they are and, you know, and come back to that. And I think when you start to lose your, lose your focus, lose your drive, you come back to your center and you come back to your people that sort of nourish why you were doing this in the first place. 
um, remember that you are there to serve students and that obviously we have jobs and things we have to do, but keep remembering that, that they need to stay at the focus. Mm -hmm. And then um, my other two pieces of advice, keep equity at the center of all of your work, not as an afterthought, but keep it Mm -hmm. that the idea of equity really at the middle and just keep presuming confidence in all of your students. If you want to see confidence, it helps if you look for it. And sometimes Mm. we have to think about changing our own practices and our own opportunities and our own way of thinking for our students to be able to demonstrate what they know and can do. Yeah. That's one of my favorite, favorite phrases is you find what you're looking for. That's right. (laughs) Um, Fantastic. Uh, If anybody wants to reach out to you, where would be the best place to send them? So certainly coming to our website, you can get lots of information and also get contact information for me and for the rest of our staff. Um, so uh, the website will be in all the, the, the notes as well, yep. but it's but disabilityinclusioncenter.syr.edu. It's the Center on Disability and Inclusion. Awesome. Are you on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or any of that? <laughs> we have our various p- parts of our center are on Facebook. Okay. So you can find us there. I am on Twitter, but I have to admit, I am a very, very infrequent tweet okay. tweeter. I think it's, I'm, I've got to get up to speed with the tweets, but yeah. um, I, I, that is on my to-do list. Actually. Well, what, whatever is available, we will link in the show notes. So. Okay, great. Uh, Dr. Christine Ashby, this has been just a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining me. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And there you go. <laughs> Obviously, a uh, big thank you to Dr. Christine Ashby and the whole team up there at the Center on Disability and Inclusion up at Syracuse. Um, they're doing a lot of great stuff, ton of resources on their website. So make sure you go check it out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I loved just our conversation. Uh, I think we touched on a lot of different uh, aspects of um, serving students with disabilities. Uh like I said, before school and beyond uh, their K-12 experience. But um, I loved a lot of the different little mindset quotes that uh, she shared with us today. Um, You know, one of them just being that, you know, presume competence. That's something that uh, isn't just uh, a good piece of advice for uh, working with students with disabilities. That is a good piece of advice for anything that you are doing, right? The things that we look for are the things that we're going to find. Um, I love I love that concept. And uh, I've heard it said before that, you know, if, if you've ever had the experience of buying a new car or at least looking for a new car, all of a sudden, what cars pop up on the road left and right, <laughs> right? For me, it was, it was as soon as I got my Honda Fit, oh my goodness, look at all those Honda Fits that are on the road now that I never noticed before, but now it's front of mind and now you're looking for it. So do the same thing with our students, right? Presume competence. And the other thing would be just that uh, if you're a school leader of some sort or you're uh, helping to implement something new in your building, just know that it's not going to take, it's not going to be rooted. The roots are not going to be deep after a few weeks or a few months, right? Change takes time in order to be sustainable. Um, And it takes a plan. It takes more than just, you know, hey, here's something that we're going to try, right? If if you've done the work and you've done the research and you say, this is the plan for our school or for our culture, um, go into it thinking that there's going to be a multi-year transition into this new reality that you're pushing for, that you're leading for, right? Um, 
change is going to take time and it's going to take dedication from everyone. It's going to take uh, buy-in from everyone, students, parents, administration, fellow teachers. So uh, just go into it with that mindset. Um, And then the last thing is always keep the fact that you are serving students at the forefront of everything that you do and, and use that lens for your work. You know, she shared that, you know, a lot of first year teachers, we, we come, you know, guns a blazing out of college wanting to change the world. Um, but learn your community first. Talk with your parents. Talk with your administration. Talk with your coworkers. Understand the culture and integrate into that culture and change it from within as opposed to being the new, you know, fresh out of college or fresh, you know, new hire. Um you know, don't don't come into it with a mindset that you're going to change everything. Learn everything first, right? Learn the community, learn the families, learn the culture, and then do the work that's needed to serve the students. And keeping that forefront of your mind, serving students, serving students, serving students, that's what we do. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh I hope you got some value from it. I hope you got some ideas or at least some conversation starters for you to take back to your classroom and to your school and to your colleagues. Uh, before you go, though, make sure you check out the show notes page, jabadoo.com slash show 35. Hopefully I'll have all the notes or all the links available for you to check out. Uh, you can also check out all of our social media links. Would love for you to connect with us there. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the stuff. Everything's at Jabadoo. Uh, would also love for you to check out some of the Jabadoo original teacher tees. Uh, it'd be a great way for you to not only get a super comfortable uh, t-shirt, but also uh, you're you're supporting this show as well. And last but not least, uh, if you want to sign up for our new email newsletter, you can do that right there on the show notes page as well. And that would just, uh, you know, every, every week pop into your email that, hey, there's a new Jabadoo education podcast episode out. So... I would love for you to connect with us that way. And I think that'll do it. So until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.